Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. I remember several years ago, one of my friends pointed out the fact that at church, women had to bring jackets in the middle of the summer because it was always so freezing in our church building. I had grown up my whole life with my teeth chattering in church buildings, but I had never noticed it. I'd never thought about it. And my friend said, well, yeah, of course, because men wear suits to church. They wear pants and long sleeve shirts and jackets and socks and shoes when they come to church. And the church leaders who are the ones who show up in the morning to like turn on the lights and check the thermostat are always men. And so they are the ones who set the thermostats. And without even thinking about it, of course, they're going to set the thermostats to the temperature that's comfortable for them. So they're not being mean. They're not being rude or intentionally like making women cold. (laughs) They just don't realize that half the people in the church are wearing dresses. And I thought of that conversation when I read the preface to the book that we're going to be discussing today. It's Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And I'm going to read just one excerpt from that introduction. She says that the gender data gap is composed of missing information or silences in all kinds of scenarios. She says, quote, these silences, these gaps have consequences. They impact women's lives every day. The impact can be relatively minor, shivering in offices set to a male temperature norm, for example, or struggling to reach a top shelf set at a male height norm. Irritating, certainly. Unjust, undoubtedly, but not life-threatening. Not like crashing in a car whose safety measures don't account for women's measurements. Not like having your heart attack go undiagnosed because your symptoms are deemed atypical. For these women, the consequences of living in a world built around male data can be deadly. End quote. And she goes on to say that this is not malicious or deliberate on the part of men, but it's an understandable blind spot. And this non-thinking about women, even if it isn't deliberate, has a serious impact just the same. And this MO has to change. But before I get ahead of myself, I want to welcome my reading partner to the program, Barbie Hada Harper. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Amy. It's great to be here with you. I'm so excited to have you here, Barbie. Barbie and I met, what year was it, Barbie? I would say oh, it was 99? 99, yeah. Uh-huh. I think, in college. And then we didn't see each other for years. I remember I thought you were so amazing and I loved any time I would see you, but we didn't know each other super well. But then our paths crossed again once we were married and we found out we had all of these things in common. And in fact, I think you grew up really close to my husband in Southern California in Orange County too. So we we were meant and destined to be friends and we live near each other now. And you're just such a smart and inspiring person. I'm so grateful to have you as a friend and to have you as a reading partner today. So thanks so much for being here. Oh, wow. So nice. Thanks, Amy. And so to start off, as we always do, I'd love you to just introduce yourself and tell us where you're from and some things about how you grew up and what you love to do and your education and just some things that make you who you are. Okay, sure. I was, like you said, I was born and raised by my parents in Mission Viejo, California. 
I was the only girl with three brothers. My dad is Japanese American. He was born actually as his parents migrated back to California after being imprisoned in the Jap- Japanese internment camps of World War II. And my mom is Caucasian. They were high school sweethearts. And being biracial has informed my life experience in a deep way. Uh, I also was raised a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, There I've learned great values and had some stellar examples. But um, also the church itself is highly patriarchal, and this aspect has been challenging for me at times, especially in my adult life. As a child, though, I was kind of by default socialized more as a boy in some ways with three brothers. I was kind of this confident achiever, altruistic. Um, I ended up becoming student body president, valedictorian, and voted most likely to succeed. And the only reason I mention that is because it was kind of like my little inside joke that even that even then I knew I was you know going to be a stay at home mom that that was the noble path that I was, you know, supposed to, to go on. And so there was this kind of tension for me always. In my teens, I began to sense that my ambition made some men uncomfortable. I remember a boy that I dated said that he was concerned about how I would do as a mom since I was so ambitious. And then I remember one time I shared with a man at church who was a great doctor, and I told him that I was interested in medical school. And he counseled me to not go to medical school because it calluses women's nurturing qualities. And I just kind of went, you know, fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. Um, I thought, okay, that's not my path. Fast forward, I became an undergrad at BYU in fitness and wellness management, still interested in health, Uh, served an 18-month volunteer mission, and afterwards I met my husband, an Idaho farm boy, And, you know, he swept me off my feet and I canceled all plans to pursue the masters I had intended to pursue. And I just really sincerely felt it was more noble and practical to support his education and his career over any dreams of mine, since I would, you know, obviously be juggling that with motherhood. So it just felt complicated. Um, We have four children today, ages seven to 15. And I have stayed at home most of the time doing some freelance editing and some PR on the side. And I'm also currently studying holistic health and nutrition and detoxification with the goal of becoming a practitioner. I also have kind of a side passion for art and design. Regarding motherhood, I don't want to knock it in one bit. I still believe it is a noble calling. And I, but I also believe in the importance of fatherhood. And my husband has felt an increasing amount of grief over the heavy burden that it's been for him to be the sole provider. Once on your podcast, Amy, I heard a statistic that Iceland men and women equally contribute to their house incomes. And concurrently, Iceland has the lowest suicide rate for adult males. And this hit home for me. At the time, we were going through a lot of kind of tumultuous distress. And so I thought, okay, maybe it's not so noble to, to be the stay-at-home mom. There's obviously a little more complexity that we can explore there. If we did it over again, my husband and I would allow ourselves to creatively explore a more egalitarian balance within our marriage while still prioritizing the raising of our children in a loving and healthy environment. So yeah, that's me. Yeah, and and 
you know, I can relate to so many of the, <laughs> those choices and that life path. It's so relatable. And I know for so many listeners, too. Thanks for sharing all of that. Sure. So what interested you in this project? I usually ask kind of this vague question of like, what does breaking down patriarchy mean to you? Or why were you interested in doing the podcast? So you can kind of answer that however you want. Sure. Ever since I've known you, Amy, I don't want to make you squirm, but I (laughs) sincerely have respected your depth of intellect and your depth of heart and the way that that guides you. And um, I always just sense that in you from the moment we met. Your Dear Mormon Man piece resonated with me deeply. And so when your podcast came along and it, when I came across it, I just knew I was going to dive right in. And I believe that this work is part of an ongoing awakening. And it's a privilege for me to be a small part in this conversation. Uh, I also believe that life gives us trauma. And some of these are micro traumas that we are not even uh, recognizing as trauma And that one of our tasks in life is to identify that trauma and do the inner work that is needed so that we can heal and be freed of that. And this takes time and searching and vulnerability. And so part of my healing has come through the education and the community that this podcast has provided me. So thank you, Amy, for providing that. I also want to echo what you've said in past episodes, which just as a personal disclaimer, that I have remarkably good men in my life. And they're some of my favorite people on this earth and boys included. So I don't see myself as a victim of men per se, even though I know some women could rightly say that they are. For me, I feel more that the patriarchal system facilitates a sort of self-deception for both women and men. And I think we can find a better way. Mm. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Like on a personal level, that did make me squirm, but that was so kind. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Barbie. That means so much to me. And that's such a great insight. And again, I mean, you can tell we're friends. We have a lot in common and a similar worldview, too. So I appreciate you bringing that up, too. Again, I can't say it enough. That's such an important part of the ethos of this project in every single episode that I want to emphasize is that, like you said, we need to find a better way and a way that works better for, for everybody, not it's not just it's not about men being the bad guys and women being victims it's it's sometimes is but that's not the point it's that the system doesn't serve anybody well so right fantastic okay well let's dive in to the subject of our conversation today which is this book invisible women and first we'll get to know the author of the book so caroline criado perez it's hard to say that with an english accent but like it's, it's an Argentine it is. Spanish name, Criado Perez. She was born in Brazil. Her dad was Argentine and her mom was English, but they were living in Brazil when she was born. She was born in 1984 and the family had lived in several countries during her childhood, including Spain, Portugal, Taiwan and the UK. And she also attended boarding school in the Netherlands. So she really has an international perspective. Criado Perez studied history at a university in London, but then she discontinued her studies. She loved opera, and for a time she wanted to become an opera singer, and she worked various jobs in order to pay for singing lessons. She then worked in yet another field, digital marketing, for some years, and then studied for an English literature A-level 
which in the UK, I think is like the test that they take to get into university. And she gained a place to study English language and literature at Oxford University as a mature student. And that was inspiring for me as somebody who went to you know, graduate school later in life as well. She went back a little bit later. And she graduated from Oxford in 2012, and she became a feminist through studying language and gender in a book by Deborah Cameron, which discussed gender's relationship to pronouns. And she mentions this in her book, and I thought that was interesting too. She also studied gender studies at the London School of Economics. And some of her notable campaigns as she got involved in you know, social movements were getting a female historical figure on Bank of England banknotes, which is awesome. And then another campaign that she was in charge of was getting Twitter to introduce a report abuse button on tweets. And another really notable effort that she led was getting the first statue of a woman, which was Millicent Fawcett in Parliament Square in England. So she's a really impressive activist as well. Her first book was called Do It Like a Woman, and it was published in 2015. And then the book that we're discussing today is a number one Sunday Times best-selling book. It's, again, called Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And it was published in March of 2019. So with that intro, let's dig into the book. And as always, we'll just take turns highlighting different parts of the book that stood out for us. And I am going to start with a little bit in the introduction. So for me as a word person, one really interesting part was this. She says, quote, Anthropologist Sally Slocum pointed out that gender bias appeared not only in the ways in which the scanty data are interpreted, but in the very language used. The word man, she wrote, is used in such an ambiguous fashion that it is impossible to decide whether it refers to males or to the human species in general. And it continues, Numerous studies in a variety of languages over the past 40 years have consistently found that what is called the generic masculine, using words like he in a gender-neutral way, is not in fact read generically. It is read overwhelmingly as male. When the generic masculine is used, people are more likely to recall famous men than famous women, to estimate a profession as male-dominated to suggest male candidates for jobs and political appointments. Women are also less likely to apply and less likely to perform well in interviews for jobs that are advertised using the generic masculine. While the generic masculine only really clings on in the writings of pedants who still insist on using he to mean he or she, it has made something of a comeback in the informal usage of Americanisms such as dude and guys, and in the UK, lads, as supposedly gender neutral terms. End quote. Okay, so my family, just to out myself, we are in trouble on this one because <laughs> Eric is from Southern California. He will say dude until the day he dies to all people, <laughs> regardless of gender. I say guys to my daughters all the time, just like, hey, guys, it's just it is. It's the generic masculine. Also, for some unknown reason, Sophie, my daughter, has started addressing her all-girl group of friends at school as lads. <laughs> like, <laughs> come on, lads, let's go. Like, and they're all girls. So I, I guess it. we should probably stop. I think it's kind of funny, but actually, I mean, this quote kind of, I thought was kind of arresting. And I do have a problem when people say, it just, 
it just makes me feel left out. And it just stings a little bit when people say mankind instead of humankind or yeah, yeah. just men. So, but, but we're guilty of it too. Yeah. Oh yeah. When I heard you say this, I thought to myself, oh man. And I thought, oh my goodness, there I was again. It's really hard to get away from. It's like interwoven in our speech. It is. And it's so, yes, we say, oh man, and oh boy. And Mm -hmm. if if you, once you start hearing it, it's everywhere. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think I need to do a better job of that because as, I mean, this is what she's pointing out is that whether it's conscious or not, subconsciously, we are reinforcing this, like the man as the one, the real Mm -hmm. human is masculine. Okay, so here's another word part, which I thought was interesting. So she says, try searching Google for lawyer in German. So the word that comes back is Anwalt, which literally means male lawyer, but it is also generically used as lawyer. If you want to refer to a female lawyer, specifically, you would say, on Valten. I don't speak German. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but sounds um, good. It so she says incidentally, the way female terms are often as here modified male terms, so on vault on Valten, um, is another subtle way we position the female as a deviation from the male type, which again is just back to Beauvoir with the one and the other, right? So Criado Perez goes on to say, the generic masculine is also used when referring to groups of people. When the gender is unknown or if it's a mixed group, the generic masculine is used. Uh, And this is in Spanish. And uh, I know Spanish, so this is definitely true. And I remember it bugging me when I learned Spanish, actually. A group of 100 female teachers in Spanish would be referred to as las profesoras. But as soon as you add even a single male teacher the group suddenly becomes los profesores. Such is the power of the default male. And I just want to just really quickly also summarize this part in the book that was so interesting where she describes how archaeologists found all of these Viking skeletons and they saw that these skeletons had very obviously female pelvises, but they just thought, well, we're seeing that wrong, right? Like, Of course, Viking warriors can't, I guess they they thought that they were men because they were buried with weapons and with wealth. And so they're like, well, they can't be female. We're seeing this wrong. And it was only after DNA testing that they realized, oh, wow, these actually really are women. And it reminded me of the very first episode of The Chalice and the Blade, where the archaeologists were studying Neolithic civilizations and they described these carvings as spears, but they turned out to be plants. And the multitude of sculptures that were found and these anthropologists and archaeologists thought that it was erotica rather than goddess iconography. And so it, that was another example that that she used in, in archaeology where we just, we think of male as being the default and it permeates kind of all fields and, and everybody, almost everybody's minds in all kinds of different contexts. So... Those were the parts that I pulled out from the intro. Mm, Yeah, it's kind of hard to get past the biases that we have. They're so strong. Mm -hmm. In chapter one, there is a part that I found to be quite interesting. It talks about the Brazilian government and how their efforts to clear some slums that they had called favelas, where it just has shacks kind of stacked on top of each other. These women who live there 
were displaced as they updated complexes and moved them far, far away on the other side of town. So these women ended up finding themselves far from their jobs without cars, without good public transportation, without childcare, and without this network, this community that they had come to depend on where they had formerly lived. And so all of a sudden here they were stuck in their homes, taking care of their kids. This is like a stay at home's mom's nightmare. You know, I really think this causes mental illness. You just feel so isolated if you don't have that network surrounding you, that network of support. And to compound issues, it was illegal to run an in-home business like a daycare to make money. And so these women, um, you know, they couldn't hardly do anything for themselves but sit at home. The women who did not have children and did have work commutes would have to travel three to six hours a day. So to me, this is planning gone wrong. Mm -hmm. These new facilities they built could have helped these women to feel a sense of dignity and to help lift them out of poverty. If they had just planned for some simple resources like nearby public transit, nearby grocery stores and daycares, but instead, you know, it just made a bad situation worse. What a missed opportunity. I agree. And in this part, I just thought, again, like when you look at photographs of governments, it's just still even if you have like a woman here or there, it's almost all men. And so, again, it's like I just think of like the people turning the thermostats in the buildings. I really doubt that those Brazilian government officials were like, hmm, how can we make women's lives harder when we're clearing the slums? We're going to build them these facilities far away with no resources and no support. Of course not. It's just they are not women. And so they it was just, again, it's this gap of like, they didn't know what women's lives really felt like. And so they made all of these really misguided choices because there were no women in the room going like, that is not going to work for moms with kids, right? It's just the women were invisible. Sorry, but it just, oh, that part just like, breaks my heart. What a missed opportunity. Like you said, right. Barbie, so sad. So sad. So sad. And there was so much potential there. Yeah. Stateside, there's a story out of Philadelphia where a city planning committee sounded like a similar situation where they were constructing some some units where people could have new housing. And the these committee, this committee of men were going, they were going to put shared kitchens on the third floor with no elevator. Mm. And so it talks about this one woman on this council who was trying to explain to her male counterparts, would you want to carry all your groceries and all your kids and a baby stroller up three flights of stairs? And that's, you know, often multiple times a day. Mm. And I just think it doesn't occur to them. You know, you can just see these men going, oh, (laughs) okay, now I get it, you know? Um, so, you know, these, these facilities are obviously often planned by groups of men who just don't have an understanding of women's lives. One positive solution, as I read this book, I was honestly just kind of like hoping and hoping I could see some positive solutions that she would suggest. And she did in some parts. Um, one positive was when she cited Vienna's public housing officials who built a new housing complex again. But they began by collecting sex disaggregated data, which is like a light bulb, you know, (laughs) so important. That's one thing that keeps coming up is just collect the data and disaggregate it for women and for men. Um, Austria's National Statistics Agency revealed that women spend double the time per day than men 
on unpaid work, such as household chores and childcare. Armed with this data, they identified that the people this housing was intended to serve was women. How awesome is that, too? I love that they prioritize women in this whole facility. And so the planners solicited their feedback and designed the housing based on that feedback. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Vienna came up, and I think we're going to talk about Vienna later, too. I'd never really known that Vienna was so, like, progressive and woman friendly. (laughs) But it it must be because they've done some really great things. Okay, so the next chapter that we thought was really great is chapter two. And we both had some quotes that we wanted to share from this chapter. I'll start out. And she begins this chapter. So the chapter title is called Gender Neutral with Urinals. And she begins the chapter with this so relatable scenario of being at a theater for a show, like a play or a musical or the symphony or something and the line for the ladies room right at intermission like everyone can relate to this it just goes out the door and wraps all the way around the foyer right and there's no line for the men's room so you're always tempted to just like run in and go in the men's room so after reading just that I was like yeah why have I why do we all just live with that why does no one solve that problem that's a problem that super inconveniences women And I have never in my life thought, we need to solve this problem. I'm just like, oh, well, I guess I'll be late for the second act or whatever, Mm -hmm. because it's such a long line. Anyway, we just don't question those things. But these are problems that can be solved. So anyway, she, she says this, quote, on the face of it, it may seem fair and equitable to accord male and female public toilets the same amount of floor space. I should say, too, because she's British, they call the restroom, they call the room the toilet, not the actual, like, uh, object in the restroom. So when she says public toilets, she's saying public restrooms. So she says that it would seem fair and equitable to accord male and female public toilets the same amount of floor space. And historically, this is the way it has been done. 50-50 division of floor space has even been formalized in plumbing codes. However, if a male toilet has both cubicles and urinals, the number of people who can relieve themselves at once is far higher per square foot of floor space in the male bathroom than in the female bathroom. Suddenly, equal floor space isn't so equal. She goes on to say, but even if male and female toilets had an equal number of stalls, the issue would not be resolved because women take up to two to three times as long as men to use the toilet. Okay, and pause the quote, because here I thought she was going to say because, you know, women have to take off their pants and sit down or whatever. But it's even more than that. She says, women make up the majority of the elderly and disabled two groups that tend to need more time in the toilet. Women are also more likely to be accompanied by children as well as disabled and older people. Then there's the 20 to 25% of women of childbearing age who may be on their period at any one time and therefore needing to change a tampon or a sanitary pad. Women may also in any case require more trips to the bathroom than men. Pregnancy significantly reduces bladder capacity as we know, (laughs) and women are eight times more likely to suffer from urinary tract infections than men, which again increases the frequency with which a toilet visit is needed, end quote. So that part really blew my mind. And also I loved that it was just like the most universal, practical 
situation that everybody could relate to and thought, and I did again, I just thought like, yeah, why, why are we not solving this anyway? Yeah. And it's just supported by data again, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a big data person per se, but this book just made me go, oh my goodness, data just makes these problems kind of irrefutable. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So yeah, exactly. If if there were more women in those building planning meetings, there's no way that we would continue to have this problem. And again, it's not that men are doing this on purpose. It's just that most men never have to think about it or stand in those lines and wait to go in after, you know, intermission. Another even deeply sad statistic that I learned in this book is that a third of the world's population lack adequate toilet provision at all. According to the UN, one in three women lack access to safe toilets. Oh, this it was really devastating for me to kind of try to sit in these, in this this discomfort when I just thought about the reality that these women live. The next few pages here in this chapter talk about how women all over the world don't have access to safe private spaces to relieve themselves, and they are thus vulnerable to sexual assault. And this problem, surprisingly, is worldwide. There's been a trend of public toilet closures in the U.S. for over 50 years. Furthermore, the health problems that result from this are far worse for women. Local governments do this to cut costs. However, Yale did a study suggesting that installing more toilets would actually reduce costs associated with these sexual assaults. Mm. So sometimes it's just a different perspective that you know, it's not necessarily cutting costs at all. Sexual assault of women on public transportation all over the world is quite high and also highly underreported. Women then, because of this, learn to take longer routes, uh, prolonging their productivity or shortening their productivity, and then they stop riding public transit altogether due to these dangers, which really is an infringement on their freedom. Mm-hmm. That seems so wrong. There's, it goes on with more discussion of public space in other areas of our lives, which are thought of as gender neutral. And technically, all genders have equal access to some of these spaces, but they're so male dominated that only very traditionally masculine men feel comfortable entering. Uh, one example that we're probably most many of us are familiar with are weight rooms and gyms. I think you had told me something about Sophie. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Even uh, it was really recently and she was talking about how much she hates her PE class because she's in like a weight training class. And I, I I was asking her about it and she just said that she just feels so uncomfortable because she so she's in 10th grade right now. And most of the class is upper classmen boys, like boys that are her age and older than her. And so mm. essentially men and like they're they're not threatening boys but just she just said I just feel uncomfortable like they're it just makes me feel unsafe and nervous and I so I had just read this chapter and I was like yeah that's that is just a fact of life and I don't know whether it's it's just kind of that under like our subconscious brain as women, and especially maybe as smaller women, but probably just as women of just being like, I am in a room full of men. It's it's like that lizard brain thing, like the primal part of our brain that just goes, I'm not safe. And she was feeling it very, very strongly. And so mm. 
uh, she really doesn't want me to email the school, but I kind of wanted to with this section of the book that says like, there's data for this. This isn't this girls are reporting, not feeling safe in these spaces. And I have to say too, I do. I remember we, when we were in England for a summer, a few years ago, there was a gym that had an all like only women's part of the gym and I too I was just like I just feel more comfortable in there I went in there and there were like like lots of Muslim women who I think it was a modesty issue and they wanted to wear their headscarves and more modest clothing and you know traditional like Indian women Hindu women who want who had their traditional clothing but lots of Western women too just in their yoga pants and tank tops like me but just like I just feel safer and more comfortable around a bunch of women to that gym example that that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then another one, another one of the public places that she mentions in this uh, chapter are parks, just public parks. And so this is the other success story in Vienna that I referred to earlier. So she says, quote, in the mid-1990s, research by local officials in Vienna found that from the age of 10, girls' presence in public parks and playgrounds decreased significantly. But rather than simply shrugging their shoulders and deciding that the girls just needed to toughen up, city officials wondered if there was something wrong with the design of parks. And so they planned some pilot projects and they started to collect data. It turned out that single, large, open spaces were the problem because these forced girls to compete with the boys for space. Originally, these spaces were encased by wire fencing on all sides with only a single entrance area around which boys would congregate. And the girls, unwilling to run the gauntlet, simply weren't going in. Enter stage right Vienna's very own Leslie Nope. Claudia Prince Brandenburg with a simple proposal, more and wider entrances. And they subdivided the sport courts and the grassy areas so that they could be occupied by smaller groups that didn't compete with each other. These were all subtle changes, but they worked. A year later, there were more girls in the park. And now all new parks in Vienna are designed along the same lines. End quote. I loved that. Wasn't I love that, that too. Interesting. So I would great. never have thought of that. So, but just in, for them in the first place to be like, this isn't working for girls. Girls are are not coming to parks. And then to say, why? Let's find out why. And let's find out if there's something we can do about it. And it's mm -hmm. such a simple solution. Mm -hmm. I loved it. Love it. And going back to the weightlift, weightlifting, and then also, you know, spending time outside in parks, these are all really important and healthy lifestyle practices. Women yes. actually need to lift weights to help prevent their bone degeneration as they age. Mm -hmm. And if women aren't feeling comfortable enough to go to a gym, that's wrong. And mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes I, my boy actually heard me talking about this part and he kind of you know, just not knowing he doesn't know yet. Now you have some work to do there, but he just went, Oh, girls are fine. But I think we need to stand back and honor these feelings of discomfort and say, well, let's do something about that. Mm -hmm. And these changes are so subtle. And so sometimes really inexpensive, but so meaningful. Yes. It's yeah. Awesome. Going on. I really enjoyed chapter four. It's called the myth of meritocracy. And, um, you know, they, she talks about how in certain enlightened arenas like tech, you know, modern arenas, I guess, and academia, it's a popular belief that individuals receive recognition based on their merit. 
And, you know, of course, that's how it should be. But she goes on to prove that this concept of meritocracy is sadly a myth. Uh, Quote, in academia, for example, students and academics who are female are significantly less likely to receive funding, be granted meetings with professors, be offered mentoring, or even to get the job. But universities operate as if males and females are on a level playing field. Multiple studies have shown that when female authored papers are rated under double blind review, meaning they aren't gender specified, they are accepted more often or rated higher. So there is a gendered publishing gap. When female academics are published, several studies have shown that women are systematically cited less than men, a gendered citations gap. And both of these gaps lead to a vicious cycle where fewer women progress in their careers and around again we go. Meanwhile, there's another study that showed that women in academia and many other workplaces are actually asked to do more undervalued work than their male colleagues, like taking notes, getting coffee, and doing the cleanup. They generally do it because they're penalized as being unlikable if they say no. This likability factor in turn affects their ability to publish. Another vicious cycle, putting women between a rock and a hard place. This lack of meritocracy in academia is a real problem. And as she says, you know, it really should concern all of us. It's not just about academia here. This is going to affect the quality of research in government policy, in medical practice, in occupational health legislation. This research honestly has a direct impact on all of our lives and our futures. So we need women to be represented here. Okay, um, another interesting part that I enjoyed. So I have an exercise for you, for everyone here. And you can be the guinea pig here, Amy. Tell me the first image that comes to your mind when you picture a genius. Einstein. Okay. And, you know, she says chances are it's a man. And so thank you for that great demonstration. (laughs) And, you know, it's okay because we all have these unconscious biases. For some reason, I pictured the inventor Thomas Edison. Mm -hmm. Um, Brilliance bias is in no small part a result of the data gap. Female geniuses have been written out of history. I actually, when I read that, I thought, oh my goodness, who is a female genius? Mm -hmm. Can you think of one famous female genius? I can think of a female warrior Mm. and great leaders. Um, I think of Marie Curie. Like I think of Uh science when I think of genius, I guess. Yeah. Florence Nightingale, I thought of. Yeah, not many though. I mean, I can think of some now after the podcast, I can think of more than I would have been able to before. But even with the podcast, it's like uh, Virginia Woolf in literature and yeah. Sure. You could like rattle off like 50 men. (laughs) Right. But these women have, even with all of their accomplishment and their gifts, they've become invisible Mm -hmm. in history, which is such a loss. Mm -hmm. Going on, she talks about children and how children are taught brilliance bias from an early age. There is this draw a scientist meta-analysis where young children, probably around kindergarten age, are asked to draw roughly equal or asked to draw a scientist. And it turn, as it turns out, they draw about equal percentages of male and female scientists mm. averaged out uh, across boys and girls. But by the time these children are seven or eight, 
Male scientists significantly outnumber female scientists, and by the time they're age 14, children are drawing four times as many male scientists as female scientists. And this actually isn't backed by reality. In the UK, for example, there are more female scientists than male in genetics, in polymers, and in microbiology. Um, Criado Perez suggests that our schools are teaching brilliance bias, but I'm willing to bet that our teaching at home is also impacting it. I know I've gotten after my husband for doting on our only girl and who can blame him as being cute and pretty or commenting on her outfit. But I worry, you know, sometimes I kind of slap his hand figuratively and correct him because I worry that she's going to learn to place her deepest value in her appearance if that's what she's customarily hearing. Mm-hmm. So now anytime he makes a comment on her appearance, he'll follow it with, and you're smart and you're tough too. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. That's how Eric, so, I mean, anytime Eric gives me or any of the girls compliments and now it's kind of a joke, but I do think it's good. He'll say like, is it okay to say you're pretty? <laughs> like, yes, it's fine. Mm, okay. Then you're pretty and that. smart and <laughs> like, thanks. It's okay. You can just <laughs> say I'm pretty sometimes because yeah, it, as long as you're saying all the other stuff, but yeah, it's a huge problem. It's a huge, and women do it too. Not just men, right? We've talked yes. about this before on the podcast. Like I have to catch myself not doing that to my daughters and my nieces and in fact, just the other day, Sophie and Stone came into the kitchen and I went to sit and I, the first thing out of my mouth was, oh my gosh, Sophie, you look so pretty. Cause she did, she'd done her hair. And I was like, and Stone, you look so handsome. And it was just so, it just felt so forced. Cause I, and I was like, man, man. And I just said, man, that's my exclamation. <laughs> oh, it is just in everything. It's in everything. Oh boy! Oh boy! Oh my! (laughs) I know you just can't, and we have to be gentle with ourselves. This change isn't going to happen overnight, and you know a lot of it is—it's seemingly innocent, but I think it is good to just question and to notice. You know, sheesh, crazy. (sighs) Well, um, I'll move on in chapter five. She introduces um, what she calls the Henry Higgins effect. But I really liked the part where she talks about breast cancer rates. Mm-hmm. Um, it has affected me personally. Uh, what she says is over the past 50 years, breast cancer rates in the industrialized world have risen significantly. And so my mom has had breast cancer twice. They were unrelated mm-hmm. cases. Oh. And it's been really difficult there. Uh, my grandmother has had breast cancer as well. And so, you know... It's very personal, like I said, but the truth is breast cancer affects one in eight women. And so mm-hmm. most, most of us know someone who has dealt or is dealing with this disease. She says, quote, a failure to research female bodies, occupations, and environmental toxins means that the data for exactly what is behind this rise is lacking. Rory O'Neill, professor of occupational and environmental policy research at the University of Sterling, says, We know everything about dust disease in minors, but you can't say the same for exposures, physical or chemical, in women's work, unquote. She goes on to describe the effects of chemicals on women working in nail salons. Mm -hmm. Um, This kind of reminds me of The Jungle, the expose from, I had to read it in high school, it's Mm -hmm. from 1905 on the awful conditions of the meatpacking industry back in that, that day. And I just thought, oh my goodness, we haven't come that far. 
these poor women in nail salons are there. They tend to be smaller and women in general have thinner skin. They have higher levels of body fat than men. And our chemicals are stored oftentimes in our body fat. And um, so it's ironic that the studies on chemical exposure are done on what's called reference man, which is a Caucasian man, age 25 to 30, weighing 154 pounds. And there are many nail salon workers and factory workers experiencing health problems, including cancers linked to endocrine disrupting chemicals, which are called EDCs. And these are found in a large number of plastics, cosmetics, and cleaners. Beyond this, these workers are exposed to one set of chemicals on their job, like breathing in the toxic dust from filing acrylic nails, and then they go home and they work their second shift at home, using toxic chemicals to clean their homes. And yet there's hardly any data on how these chemicals affect women's bodies, let alone how they mix. This is something I don't usually talk about, but since it relates here, I just thought I would bring it up. I have what's called multiple chemical sensitivity, meaning that chemical odors really bother me and I notice them before most people notice them. And it kind of coincides with autoimmune disease and some other common genetic variants. Mm. But it, it really bothers my quality of life. And I sincerely wish that there was more awareness around these chemicals. You know, it's in car fumes, it's synthetic, synthetic laundry fragrance. Um, it causes my lungs to ache and exacerbates my autoimmune systems. So I just think of these poor women living in these toxic soups and just breathing this all day long and my heart just aches for them. Mm-hmm. They don't really realize what their work environment is doing to their bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this part just made me so, so sad. And I was thinking about how there was, you know, various factors intersecting with race and social class and with because, you know, as I recall, anytime I've gone in to get a pedicure in these nail salons, it's 100 percent immigrant women. It's people from various parts of Asia who are you know, also really petite women, you know, when I, when I read about like, you know, the smaller size of bodies and thinner skin, and there are these, it's all Asian women and, and people who are immigrants in new countries have, you know, so many obstacles, obstacles of language and all kinds of things that make it so hard to find a job that's in a safe, less hazardous environment. And I just thought we would never tolerate you know, having these hazardous conditions, if it was impacting rich people, impacting white rich Mm. men, there would be studies on this immediately and funding to like, we've got to figure out we can't have this happening to people. But because they're, you know, women of color, Asian women who of a very modest means, they just fall through the cracks in our society, doesn't prioritize their health. And that just broke my heart. Mm, yeah, it's really tragic. And they're coming here and working their tail off for a really meager wage. And yeah. I just think about actually how this concept that their skin is thin and their size, you know, they tend to be smaller people. Um, I feel like I want to clarify that that matters because when a woman is exposed or when anyone is exposed to toxins, the size of your body does matter because as it overflows, that and you start to have because your body overflows with toxins and your body has outcomes, you know, disease and negative outcomes. 
And then also the thinness of your skin matters because one entry point of toxins through the, into the body is the skin, mm. our skin absorbs. And so, um, you know, these are relevant points mm-hmm. and yeah, I just feel, I feel so sad for them. Mm-hmm. They don't deserve that. So the next chapter that we wanted to highlight is chapter seven, and this is kind of on the same topic, which is, uh, toxins that impact women disproportionately. And I'll just dive in with a description of this scenario. She says, quote, humans, by which I mean mainly women, have been cooking with three stone fires since the Neolithic era. These are exactly what they sound like, three stones on the ground on which to balance a pot with fuel, wood, or whatever else you can gather that will burn placed in the middle. In South Asia, 75% of families are still using biomass fuels which is wood or other organic matter for energy. In Bangladesh, the figure is as high as 90%. In sub-Saharan Africa, biomass fuels are the primary source of energy used for cooking for 753 million people. That's 80% of the population. The trouble with traditional stoves is that they give off extremely toxic fumes. A woman cooking on a traditional stove in an unventilated room is exposed to the equivalent of more than 100 cigarettes a day. Globally, they cause three times more deaths every year than malaria, which is 2.9 million. Women who cook on them are exposed to these fumes for three to seven hours a day, meaning that worldwide, indoor air pollution is the single largest environmental risk factor for female mortality and the leading killer of children under the age of five. Indoor air pollution is also the eighth leading contributor to the overall global disease burden, causing respiratory and cardiovascular damage, as well as increased susceptibility to infectious illnesses such as tuberculosis and lung cancer. However, as is so often the case with health problems that mainly affect women, scientists admit that, quote, these adverse health effects have not been studied in an integrated and scientifically rigorous manner, end quote. I'm just so, like, it almost, like, knocks the air out of me, and partly because I had never even heard of that before. Had you heard of that before, Barbie, before reading this book? The statistics were staggering. It was staggering. I had no idea how common, how common this, this happens. And it was interesting too. I think you're going to talk Barbie about this, this chapter too, that was so, so frustrating to read about. Well, and like the quote I just shared that, that it hasn't been studied in a rigorous manner, like to solve the problem, which is, I guess, what we were just talking about with the nail salons. It's like these people are poor and it's in not the richest countries in the world. And so it's not being these people's health and these women's health, especially who are cooking around these stoves, it's not being studied. And so there's big problems in data collection, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So she goes on to tell how since the 1950s, development agencies have actually tried to introduce clean stoves, but these organizations are not doing proper data collection. Um, And oftentimes, as we've discussed before, it's not that hard and it's really kind of just like a tweak, but it just hasn't been happening correctly. She says, quote, they don't generally collect data on what user needs actually are. For example, drinking water pumping, food processing, and fuel collection, 
before starting on their development projects. And the result of this dearth of data is that to date, clean cook stoves have nearly all been rejected by users. A USAID-funded report in Bangladesh repeatedly acknowledged that all five stoves increased cooking time and required more attending. This prevented women from multitasking, as they would with a traditional stove, and forced them to change the way they cooked, again increasing their workload. Nevertheless, the main and repeated recommendation of the report was to fix the women rather than the stoves. Ah, this bothers me. Mm The women needed to be educated on how great the improved stoves were rather than the designers needing to be educated on how not to increase women's already 15-hour average workday. There is hope from India where the problem was addressed. Designers closed the gender data gap and first consulted with the women, then designed a cheap $1 mechanism that fit within their current stoves to increase efficiency. End quote. Uh, it's sometimes such a simple solution mm-hmm. and it just, they, these women, they just need to matter. They just need people to notice what they're going through. Um, I cook a lot. I have a boy with some health issues as well and I cook a lot and I just can't comprehend cooking with all that smoke day in and day out. It's just not humane. Mm. It's, it's not all right. Mm-mm. It's not. I wanted to share one more thing about this from the from this chapter cuz I did think this was one of the most important ones. She talks about in another initiative in Bangladesh that the the women expressed enthusiasm about the new stoves but then when their husbands got home they forbid their wives from spending their very limited money on the new cook stove. And so like they got so these, you know, these international kind of like humanitarian aid people who came in, got the women all excited about the stove, but then didn't do the research, I guess, about like whether they would be able to afford them. And then a headline was run afterwards, you know, once they had introduced the stoves and then the women didn't use them or didn't buy them or whatever, the headline said, quote, despite efforts for change, Bangladeshi women prefer to use pollution causing cook stoves. (laughs) And I was just that I thought that was infuriating. They like to not care to find out why the women didn't get the new stoves and to blame the women and made, you know, make them sound like they were irresponsible and backward that they didn't want these, you know, new gadgets. It that was just infuriating to read. And then absolutely one more thing that I thought of actually. I don't know if you read this, but recently I I saw a headline that Francis Collins, who is a really famous, well-regarded scientist, and th- he had made this headline because he in the New York Times because hmm. he said he was refusing to speak in any public conferences and forums until they put women on the panel. So if if hmm. he's invited to speak and he says that and he sees that it's an all-male panel, um, he'll he'll just boycott it and say not until women and not until you invite women. And so he's great. My hero and (laughs) like such a fantastic example of what to do. So I've, I always thought that this was awesome because it was a powerful act of solidarity and support and a brave act of moral courage to, you know, stand for equity and inclusion for women. But what I hadn't really thought of is that it's critical to have women 
on those panels. I guess this is my point. This is how it ties to the chapter is that not only is it in principle for a male scientist to say, no, I'm not going to you know, participate and get paid at this conference unless there are women there. In principle, mm-hmm. it's awesome. But also what I didn't even think of is if there are no women on those panels, if there are no women in those rooms, like we've talked about in other chapters, the design is not going to meet the women's needs in those in their real lives, like the favelas that you talked about. And, you know, there was another example in the book about they develop, they put all of this money. And by they, I mean, like, again, these like, you know, charity, foreign charity projects who have all of these great intentions and but they put tons and tons of time and money and effort into developing you know these new seeds for crops or the new cook stoves or the new housing project or whatever and if they don't have women's data it wastes all of that money and effort and time it's just completely wasted and so that's the other reason why women have to be in the room have to be on those panels so right it's yeah it's not even the discussion doesn't even always have to center around equity it's really about just having good results for everyone that we they need women's perspectives and it really is in men's best interest as well because we don't want to waste resources and time right. you know that's worthwhile to make most use of these things right right okay another chapter that we wanted to highlight is called a sea of dudes. <laughs> it's chapter nine. Okay. And um, we, I think we each had a couple of things that we wanted to share from this chapter. First, uh, it talked about a woman gamer and author who was playing a virtual reality game for the first time in multiplayer mode, right? So you have somebody else, like another actual human being who has an avatar in the game with you. And she was sexually assaulted virtually by a player (laughs) named big bro 442 and vr is designed to feel real so it felt real to her and she wrote about it on her blog and i wanted to share this because again this isn't this is another example of something positive because the makers of the game had a really great response Quote, they immediately redesigned their personal bubble setting in which other players' hands disappear if they come close to your face to cover the entire body and so made such groping impossible. But as they themselves noted, while they had thought of the possibility of some silly person trying to block your view with their hands and ruining the game, they hadn't thought of extending the fading function to the rest of the body. How, they asked, could we have overlooked something so obvious? End quote. So I just think, again, this is another example. Really good people who are like, oh, no, why didn't we think that, you know, if you can see hands and you can interact with somebody virtually, we didn't even think of sexual, like, groping, inappropriate touching. Again, because usually, typically, that's not part of men's lives. And so this was an example of, you know, in the computer and tech and VR gaming industry, which is also super heavily dominated by men. It's just, again, it's a data gap. It's a blind spot where women probably would have thought like, oh, what are you going to do about that personal bubble? And that, that, you know, traumatizing experience for that woman could have been avoided in the first place. Right, right. Okay, there was another kind of similar scenario where in Cape Town, 
a tech company fell into a trap where they were developing an app to help community health workers monitor HIV positive patients. So sounds like a really good a good project. Um, the app, quote, fulfilled all the usability requirements. It was easy to use, adaptable to local language, and solved a very specific issue. More than this, the community health workers were excited at the prospect of using it. But when the service was launched, it proved to be a flop. Despite several attempts to solve it, the problem remained a mystery until a new design team took over the project, a team that happened to have a woman in it. This woman took only a day to discover the problem. It turned out that in order to more safely travel to the townships where their patients lived, female health workers were concealing their valuables in their underwear, and the phone was too big to fit in their bras. Mm. Kind of an interesting scenario there. Mm -hmm. My husband is involved in tech right now, and so I know personally that development of tech is really, really expensive, and it takes a lot of time. And so this is a huge loss. I mean, it sounds like a really wonderful app and it seems like they really worked hard on it, but they just forgot to account for a woman's experience. And clearly women were a big part of, you know, carrying this project out. This doesn't mean that Apple needs to make a bra sized phone, but there is a trend of phone theft in Cape Town. And this is one more example of how when well-meaning teams made of only men develop solutions without women's input, they're likely to miss really critical information. And since developing technology is extremely expensive, this was a huge waste of time and money. You know, if only they had consulted with the nurses beforehand, this could have been a successful endeavor. Mm-hmm. Okay, chapter 10 talks about car crashes. It's a chapter entitled The Drugs Don't Work, and so it goes into a lot more. But one subject that affects us all is this concept of car safety. It says, quote, when a woman is involved in a car crash, she is 47% more likely to be moderately injured, even when researchers control for factors like height, weight, seatbelt usage, and crash intensity. She is also 17% more likely to die. And it's all to do with how the car is designed and for whom. Women tend to sit further forward than men when driving. This is because we are on average shorter. Our legs need to be closer to reach the pedals and we need to sit more upright to see clearly over the dashboard. This is not, however, the standard seating position, end quote. Yeah, I have to throw in, in this part brought back memories. I learned to drive when I was 16 on a giant blue diesel Suburban and like the biggest car there is aside from like a Mack truck. And I remember, like, yeah. I literally had to stand up. Those were huge. They're huge, especially like in the 90s. I had to stand up yeah. to floor the <sighs> gas pedal, literally stand up. So I always laughed about that. But I kind of think of that memory differently now when I read that because yeah. my mom's even tinier than I, I'm. Pr- I'm a short woman. I'm pretty petite, but my mom is tiny. And she was the one who was driving that car in the driver's seat. And so I was just like, wow, that car was not designed for her. And it, and it should have been because suburbans are called suburbans because it's for, you know, designed for moms in the suburbs who drive a bunch right. of kids around in their carpools and stuff. And and so why are they proportioned for a six foot tall person? I I did not. I, I, I had always thought that was kind of funny that my mom and I had to stand up to 
to, you know, reach the gas pedal. But it's not so funny if you consider the safety issues in this chapter. But no. anyway, sorry to interrupt. And, you can keep well, no. And I will just add, I think my in my head, I'm thinking some people might go, well, then just scoot your chair forward. And maybe that's the ad- adaptation they need to make. But no, the further you sit forward, the more dangerous it is, the closer you are to the steering wheel. Yeah. That's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so um, I feel like they need to adapt a pedal that can be that can move forward mm-hmm. so that these short people aren't in greater danger if they want to drive True. and if they have a big car. Yeah, she says, quote, women are out of position drivers and our willful deviation from the norm means that we are at greater risk of internal injury on frontal collisions. The angle of our knees and our hips as our shorter legs reach for the pedals also makes our legs more vulnerable. Essentially, we're doing it all wrong. (laughs) Women are also at higher risk in rear end collisions. Women have less muscle on our necks and upper torso than men, which makes us more vulnerable to whiplash by up to three times. And car design has amplified this vulnerability. Swedish research has shown that modern seats are too firm to protect women against whiplash injuries. The seats throw women forward faster than men because the back of the seat doesn't give way for women's, on average, lighter bodies. The reason this has been allowed to happen is very simple. Cars have been designed using car crash test dummies based on the average male. End quote. Hmm. You're just shaking your head, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, isn't this kind of like one of those dumb moments where you're like, why... Why aren't, why aren't we doing better by now? It's hard to believe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she says, quote, crash test dummies were first introduced in the 1950s, and for decades they were based around the 50th percentile male. In the early 1980s, researchers argued for the inclusion of a 50th percentile female in regulatory tests, but this advice was ignored. It wasn't until 2011 that the U.S. started using a female crash test dummy Although just how female these dummies are is still questionable. There is one EU regulatory test that requires what is called a fifth percentile female dummy, which is meant to represent the female population. Only 5% of women will be shorter than this dummy. But there are a number of data gaps. For a start, this dummy is only tested in the passenger seat, Isn't that a crazy kind of metaphor? Yeah. So we have no data at all for how a female driver would be affected. What? I know. (laughs) And secondly, this female dummy is not really female. It is just a scaled down male dummy. And women are not scaled down men. We have different muscle mass distribution. We have lower bone density. There are sex differences in vertebrae spacing. Even our body sway is different. And these differences are all crucial when it comes to injury rates in car crashes, end quote. Mm. This was absolutely absurd to me. Mm-hmm. I've been in a scary car accident before. And when our car hydroplaned and rolled on a Utah highway in the middle of a storm, you know, at that moment, all the safety features in your car that you took for granted suddenly mean everything to you. And that's what you're relying on. And so I'm just blown away that car crash regulations are still based on such narrow data. And I kind of wonder where the government is in all of this. They're pretty good at regulating a lot of things out there. So this seems kind of like um, just a pretty obvious one. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I, yeah, I, it was really upsetting 
to read this section. It just, that, that kind of negligence is just, is really upsetting. And the data too about like, yeah, women are, women do die more often in car crashes for this reason. So it's, it's not just a feeling like, oh, I don't feel like I'm equally valued. Like it's, it's, you can see numbers. It needs to be changed. It needs to be fixed. Right. Um, the next chapter we wanted to highlight is similar. It's a completely different aspect of life, but equally upsetting for me. It's chapter 11, and it talks about heart health. And we, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the episode. We made an allusion to this, and so we'll flesh it out a little bit. She says, quote, if I were to ask you to picture someone in the throes of a heart attack, you most likely would think of a man in his late middle age, possibly overweight, clutching at his heart in agony. That's certainly what a Google image search offers up. You're unlikely to think of a woman. Heart disease is a male thing. But a recent analysis of data from 22 million people from North America, Europe, Asia, and Australasia found that women from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are 25% more likely to suffer a heart attack than men in the same income bracket. Wow. Since 1989, cardiovascular disease has been the leading cause of death in U.S. women, and following a heart attack, women are more likely to die than men. So then you read, you know, reading that or hearing that you think, okay, why? Like, what is happening? Why mm -hmm. would a woman, why do women get more heart attacks? And if a woman and a man get a heart attack, why does the woman die more often? She goes on to explain, perhaps the greatest contributor to the numbers of women dying following a heart attack is that their heart attacks are simply being missed by their doctors. Research from the UK has found that women are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed following a heart attack rising to almost 60% for some types of heart attack. This is partly because women don't have the Hollywood heart attack, which is the chest and left arm pains. Women, particularly young women, may in fact present without any chest pain at all, but rather with stomach pain, breathlessness, nausea, and fatigue. These symptoms are often referred to as quote-unquote atypical. So, yeah, I mean, my first thought is like, yeah, if I had sudden stomach pain, breathlessness, nausea, fatigue, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know those were heart attack symptoms for a woman. I would never, ever guess that that might be a heart attack. So I just think anyone who thinks, you know, anyone who is still holding out that we don't live in a male centric world. I'm sorry, but just I just think imagine if the tables were turned and the vast majority of the doctors throughout the ages had always been women, just imagine. And so women's symptoms were considered typical and men's symptoms were labeled atypical. And I know we do have many more doctors. We do have many more women doctors than we used to. And I looked it up and over half of OBs and pediatricians are now women, which is awesome. But in most fields, women are still underrepresented. And so even once we get to 50-50 too, even when there are as many, you know, women cardiovascular doctors, I still think it will, it will take a while to get all of the research and the data. And it takes a long time for us to stop seeing men as primary and women as secondary, because it's just, 
those are the foundations we've been building on for so long without even realizing, right? Right. So just one more thing from this chapter about heart attack. She says, a heart attack is traditionally diagnosed with an angiogram, which will show where there are obstructed arteries. But women often don't have obstructed arteries, meaning the scan won't show any abnormalities. Women with normal angiograms have gone on to suffer a heart attack or stroke shortly after being discharged from hospital. So yeah, it sounds like a lot more research needs to be done to save women's lives. Mm, definitely. And that brings us to the end of the book. And and honestly, like there was so much that we didn't even have a mm. chance to talk about on the episode. It's a really long book, but I thought it was one of the most readable and urgently important books that we've read on the podcast. I I thought it was really amazing. And so as we wrap up, I'd love to hear what one or two takeaways were for you from the book, Barbie. So after some thought, I've realized that for much of my life, even during really tough times, I've tended to tough things out silently, believing that there was virtue in my uncomplaining nature. And as I read accounts of invisible women suffering worldwide, I have begun to see with new eyes the suffering that compounds when man is the standard and women, the other half of humanity, is the other. I question whether my silence is actually the most noble choice. I believe women need to speak up if women's needs are to be accounted for in academia, in tech, in public policy, in civic planning, in medical research, in chemical research, and so on. So we need to find our voices, but also with a caveat. I'm going to digress a little bit and share that when my husband and I saw a marriage therapist to help us address some recurring challenges that we had been struggling with, she taught us that nuance matters when we communicate. She coached us on tone, on word choice, on sentence structure, on reflective listening skills. I mean, this was, there was a lot of content there. And I would say we're pretty high functioning people. This was really hard work, but we learned a lot and in, we experienced a lot of healing together. And it really just dumbfounded us after the entire exercise that these simple tweaks were so life-changing and that we had never really learned them before. In a parallel way, I don't think that women or men have had the opportunity to learn how to have difficult conversations with composure and with goodwill. And I think we see that in the tone of our society right now, all over. Uh, Sam Harris said, quote, apart from violence and other parts of coercion, all we have is conversation with which to influence one another. If we fail to have civil and productive conversations, and this is in brackets, this is not a direct quote, but I said on important matters, we will fail to do everything else of value. Conversation is our only tool for collaborating in a truly open-ended way, end quote. So, you know, I just believe that we need men that can be vulnerable and earn women's trust because that's been broken many for millennia. I think we need men who can learn to say things like, I'm sorry for my part in this. I want to earn your trust. I'm on your side. I want to be part of the solution. Tell me about your experience. And I think we also need women who can help men not feel cast away 
And they can say things like, I need space to feel heard. Can we practice sharing our thoughts together in a calm way? And also, I'm still learning how to communicate openly and calmly. Can you be patient with me? Also, um, some more ideas. I need to know that you're on my side and I don't want to make you into the enemy here. I need to share how patriarchy has hurt me. Can you be a listening ear for me? Sorry, I'm not a trained therapist, but just with my experience in therapy, I feel like these are statements that if we can soften our tone, we can have more constructive conversations. And from there, change can be more meaningfully addressed. As we do this with composure and goodwill, I hope that we can jointly work out solutions to all of these injustices. That's so important, Barbie. I actually just emailed a group of men that I sometimes ping to say like, okay, what, what are your thoughts on this and how can we work together? And what's, what are you kind of, what are you seeing and hearing that makes you think, yeah, I, I want to help and I want to dismantle these unjust systems and I want to get involved. And then what do you hear an experience where you're like, no, thank you. I, I mean, and, and makes you want to push back or, or walk away Mm-hmm. And everything you just said is so critical, Barbie, and we haven't talked about it enough on the podcast. So I'm really, really glad that you ended with that. That's just really, really, really important because this is a human endeavor that we all have to undertake together. And yes. so um, so it's really worth our time learning about how to you know, use those best practices of communication in order to enlist everybody to be able to work together positively and effectively. So thank you so much for sharing that. So thank you again, Barbie, so much for being here. I learned so much from you and, and this I thought was just a fantastic book and a great conversation. So thanks. Oh, thank you, Amy. So next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be discussing The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World by Melinda French Gates, which was published in 2019. My friend Becca Archibald gave me this book last Christmas, and with all the reading I've been doing for the podcast, and as listeners know, I'm also still working on my master's thesis, so I have like a book pile on the side of my bed that is so high that I just I left it and thought I'm just going to read this later but then several other people recommended it and so I picked it up and read it over the course of about three days and just and then I immediately like ordered it for several other people it's an amazing book and I'm really glad we added it to the reading list so check it out if you can check it out at the library borrow it from someone or get your own copy and highlight it it's it's an incredible book so we're excited for you to join us for the discussion of, again, it's Melinda French Gates' book called The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 